welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast in hours two. I'm your co-host, TJ West. I'm Bridget Keys. And we're coming to you with heavy hearts today to talk about the passing of the great Angela Lansbury, who died on Tuesday, October the 11th, 2022. You know, we're passionate fans of Angela Lansbury here at Cabot Cove Gazette, so we thought it would be nice to share a little bit of our personal feelings about her and her career and just how much we love her. So instead of uh, examining a specific episode of Murder, She Wrote or a specific film that Angela Lansbury starred in, as we usually do, we're just going to look back over her career and talk a little bit about what made us love her so much. I mean, because I think it is safe to say that both of us have been longtime passionate devotees of the the cult of Lansbury. Yeah. Now, uh, we need to disclose our ages here because that's going to affect like what we think of Lansbury in terms of what of her media we encountered first, right? So I was born in 1980. Uh, so I was a little kid when Murder, She Wrote premiered, and I grew up watching it. Teej, you were born? In 84, so similar. You were born yeah. when Murder, She Wrote premiered. So, you know, and I too watched it throughout my childhood, young adulthood, into encroaching middle age with my grandmother particularly, uh, but also with my parents. So it's very much a sort of family intergenerational fandom, if you will, not to get too academic, but it is sort of an intergenerational phenomenon. Do you remember when you were watching when you were little, um, what you thought of J.B. Fletcher? I remember really liking her. And I have to just as a brief aside, say that I always sort of saw her as an extension of my grandmother like in a because as a young person and as an old as a as an inc- middle-aged gay ugh, that's horrible to say but <laughs> i had a great deal of attachment to my grandmother and by extension to lots of older women and both like film and like real life like i've always loved grandmotherly figures as i think many homos do and so i always loved jb fletcher for how she sort of expressed and sort of had that um demeanor about her of, of a grandmother. And you watched mostly with your grandma, right? So there's that sort of conflation in a way of, is am I watching my grandma, but I'm watching with my grandma. So it's somebody else. Yep. But so it all gets, I think you've said before that your feelings for Jessica and for the show got really mixed up with your feelings about your own grandma with whom you were really close, right? That is absolutely correct. And it helped that my grandma was also like an Angela Lansbury fan. Like she, it wasn't just that she liked murder. She wrote, she liked Angela Lansbury in particular. Which, you know, adds another layer of, you know, that sort of intergenerational appreciation. So, Bridget, what were some of your engagements? Like, where, where, where were some of your first memories of, of JB slash Angela? You know, I also was really, really close to my grandma, um, my dad's mom in particular. And I don't ever really remember connecting the two quite in the same way that you did. But I do remember watching with my family and voting on who we thought the murderer was. And I think as a, li- as a little kid, um, I was like that sickly little kid who could never really go outside and play. Uh, mm. I spent most of my childhood like indoors with pen and paper in hand, just dreaming up stories and stuff. And so mm-hmm. I don't know that I consciously made this connection as a kid, but looking back, like it's so clear that what appealed to me was that she was a writer and she was a successful mm-hmm. writer and how writing enabled her not only to create stories that took her everywhere, um, but that literally her career took her everywhere. And I, I think that that must have really appealed mm-hmm. to me as a child because I was so intent on becoming an author myself. Yeah, I had a similar feeling. Like there's something really captivating about the opening credits in particular, like where we see 
Jessica sort of clacking away, at least in the early episodes, at the typewriter. And, you know, we see the folder where she closes the murder short. Like, there's something really... Not, I don't want to get too academic, but there's something very tactile, like, touchy about it. Like, you can almost feel, like, the sort of sensory pleasures of being a writer, if, you, if that makes sense. And I think that... And, you know, the, mm-hmm. the obvious joy that, you know, Angela Lansbury is bringing to the role of Jessica Fletcher when she's typing is... To, I agree with you that it sort of helps convey and help engender in us as viewers that the love of writing. Now, as the show went on, we both got older and probably in some ways became more sophisticated viewers or at least more conscious viewers, if that makes sense. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering how um, your image of Angela Lansbury through Jessica Fletcher sort of evolved as the series wore on or as the series went off the air. Yeah, I mean, because I think that, you know, as I grew up and certainly as I went to grad school, like it became more clear to me just how much of a, how much craft was involved with this persona. Because I think that, with an actress like Lansbury, she makes it feel, seem so normal. Like she slides into these roles with such effortless grace that you it's hard to sort of extract the actress from the star or, or actress from the mm-hmm. role. And so like, you know, it took an effort for me to sort of dis- disentangle those two. And as you alluded to earlier, even to disentangle it from my already existing feelings about my own grandmother. So it's like, that's one of the things I had to sort of work with, like as as an you know as a viewer to do actively as i got older how about you because i know you've been doing a lot of like research with her archives and such so how did your t- text or how how did your engagement with angela lansbury evolve as you got older yeah well it's definitely different now um i was in boston um looking through her personal archives only a week before she died uh so that has fundamentally changed everything i think about the show and her and we can talk more about that later, but I'm, I'm thinking about how even as a, in my childhood, before I knew any behind the scenes stuff, you know, the show was on the air from 1984 to 1996. That's basically my entire cognizant, you know, um, childhood, right? I don't really mm-hmm. remember much before I was four and I nearly was out of my parents' house in 1996. And, and even then, you know, there were the made for TV movies that continued until 2003. So really, I grew up with this series. I really can't separate um, my childhood from it in a way. Mm-hmm. And that's not something I necessarily thought of much. I was really aware of how shows like, um, unfortunately, The Cosby Show Right. Um, or, um, you know, the TGIF lineup on ABC, like how they had shaped my childhood because I was so, you know, ardently into them. Mm-hmm. And there was Murder, She Wrote in the background all that time as this sort of quiet, steady presence. And then I went away to college and we'd watch it on reruns in the dorm lounge, you know. And then as an adult, I rediscovered it and it was just this like steady presence through my life. And it's so mm-hmm. comforting because of that yeah i mean i think the only other show that like has a comparable emotional resonance for me is the golden girls although it didn't last nearly as long mm-hmm. as exactly. Murder Wrote. it after it went off the air in 92 it pretty much was in reruns forever until like 2007 so like in that sense yeah. like it, they and for similar reasons i had enormous emotional investment in the golden girls as i had in murder she wrote yeah and i think you know teach both of them are such an interesting time in tv mm-hmm. history that it's the 1980s, and we, we start seeing, like, more and more um, working women on TV. We start seeing TV made for middle-class working women who are growing in the corporate workplace um, as a group. 
And yet both of these shows show us women in their 60s plus, and they're just having the time of their lives. And it is really groundbreaking in a way that I don't think we talk about enough. Um, I would 100% agree. Yeah, there was just a reflection. Was it in the Washington Post about how if Murder, She Wrote were made today, Jessica Fletcher would have Botox and she'd wear stilettos and she'd have some sort of family trauma. And and instead, it's like this just very lovely, very smart, comforting woman in her cardigans and right. business suits, uh, just being old. <laughs> right. And that's okay. Angela Lansbury just has charisma. Like there's just something about her and warmth that is just phenomenal like it's there not just in land like in, in jessica and but warmth. it's there in like the frames that we have of her like the, the still photos that a lot of her portraiture for example like there's just something indefinably charming but also elegant like there's a, an effortlessness about her grace and her kindness and her warmth that i think shines out in everything that she did mm-hmm and I, I've always appreciated that about her. And I think that's a, a great deal of why I have so much emotional attachment toward her. Um, at the same time as there, you know, I was reading this piece in The Atlantic about um, there's always also a little bit of flintiness there, which, of course, you know, I think is part of her being British. Like there's always a sort of sort of aristocratic layer that's also also present. You know, so as we were kids, um, this is also when Beauty and the Beast came out, which I think further cemented that kind of grandmotherly image. Although, can I just say something I've always wondered is like, how did Mrs. Potts have like a five-year-old kid? How, like, she was like a grandma and then she had Chip. Um, But it was, it's also that same sort of warm, charming figure, right? And that happened when we were kids. And then I think, you know, Bedknobs and Broomsticks was 1970, but you and I both discovered it as kids. We did. I watched it a lot as a kid. Me too. I had the VHS tape and I watched it obsessively. I could say the whole movie from start to finish. Mm-hmm. I knew all the dialogue. Right. And I think that what's really interesting about Bedknobs is that it's always, in sort of Disney lore, is always overshadowed by its predecessor, Mary Poppins. Always. which Always. And it's always viewed as inferior. Yeah. And um, I have to add, it's also in, when people talk about Lansbury's career, it's always one sentence uh like martin godfrey's book balancing act it gets like two sentences it's like then she made bed dumps and broomsticks it was a disney movie and then we move on uh and i think it's really funny because when you actually talk to lansbury fans especially of our generation it's like the standout text for them it is and i think that a lot of that it's a perfect the 80s was the perfect moment for that to be the case because of obviously the rise of murder she wrote the rise of the home video market Disney especially aggressively marketing their old catalog on VHS. You know, I I remember distinctly watching this particular movie with my parents and my grandma on VHS repeatedly. My grandma loved, loved, loved Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And frankly, I like it more than I like Mary Poppins. Like, I love Mary Poppins, but I like like Bedknobs and Broomsticks much better than I like Mary Poppins and always have. What's your favorite scene in Bedknobs? Where the animal, where they go to the Isle of Nabombo and meet the animals, like that's always been my favorite. Like the animation sequence. Yeah. Yeah. Do you like bobbing along, or do you like the soccer scene? I like the soccer scene. As the the child in me loves the soccer scene. Mm Mm-hmm. That was always my favorite. I think for me, what I always I liked the mystique of bed knobs. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you remember how it begins with that text explaining that it's World War Two and something is lurking on the horizon. Uh, that was stuff that I don't remember learning about in school when we studied World War II. We didn't really learn about 
the UK that much. And so for me, this movie was like really eye-opening. And then um, there's the scene where they go to Portobello Road, mm-hmm. the street where the riches of ages are stowed. Yep. And, um, Anything and everything a chap can unload. Yeah. And I loved that too, because that was such a foreign land to me. Mm-hmm. Um as a kid, as like a, a relatively like um, cocooned little suburban kid, I never went to like a street market or anything like that. And Portobello Road just seemed so like right. exotic and mysterious. Well, for people of our generation who, you know, grew up when Murder, She Wrote was on the air, but it exists at the same time as Bedknobs and Broomsticks is experiencing this moment of, you know, arguably more popular than when it came out. You know, so it's so interesting because those for mm-hmm. millennials, I think, and for older millennials like us in particular, those are the sort of two nodes around which our understanding of who Angela Lansbury is as a star and as a, you know, as an actress are so inextricably intertwined, at least like it seems like because they're two sort of halves. Yeah, and it's really it just I don't know, there's something really fascinating that those are the two roles that we know her best as. Yeah, which is funny because, of course, when you read Lansbury interviews, she's always very gracious about the fact that Murder, She Wrote, you know, sort of greatly exponentially uh, grew her fame, right? Because TV is a mass audience and it reaches more people. But but it's always also really clear that, like, neither of those are her favorite projects. Her favorite projects were the Broadway projects, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which arguably are the least scene right right like much smaller audiences than any of her movies or tv shows right and i mean that's our, i mean that's where she, her sort of status as a gay icon comes from is from mame you know mame the sort of quintessential grand dam every gay boy's favorite aunt like you know that's sort of you know that's <laughs> the sort of thing that solidifies her identity as a, as a queer icon but for you and me like who would you know what access will we have to mame in the 80s like yeah. I mean, we wouldn't, it would have been almost impossible, maybe the cast recording. But. If you're, well, I think what you're trying to say is like if you're outside of like a particular geographic location um, and uh, class, a certain economic class, right? The stage performances are really hard to access except via cast recording. And it would have been, a, it, it's just as a brief aside, it would have been a really fascinating phenomenon if she had been cast in the film version of MAME. As opposed to Lucille Ball, which, you know, Angela wanted that role, and but Lucille was a much bigger draw than she was. Like, it, it just, I, I always, I actually wonder, like, what might have been. For one thing, I'm sure the movie would have got better reviews, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> which were not friendly toward poor Lucille. Oh, she was so salty about that. And she, and you know, in um, Lansbury's personal papers, there's a really snarky comment about how dreadful Lucy's version of the movie was and how much gauze they had to put over the camera to make her look presentable. Um, So, you know, it's clear that she was always really hurt that she didn't get that role. She really, really wanted it. I mean, like I said, the film would almost certainly have been a much better success. It has, I mean, B. Arthur was also pretty upfront about being displeased about Lucille's performance. So the reason why we switched to MAME is like, in a way, I think our experience is probably reflective of a lot of people of our generation that um, we grow up with Murder, She Wrote, and then we have access to bed knobs because of the Disney archive. They open the vault and release the VHS tapes. And then um, Beauty and the Beast, obviously, is like of our childhood moment. But then we sort of retrospectively discovered her past career, right? Mm-hmm. So this person that we knew as a TV star and sometimes movie star, then we learn, like, no, actually, 
she was a mega movie star and a mega Broadway star before she was ever a TV star. Right. Do you remember when you first found Mame? Probably. I mean, I watched the movie version in a high school, but I don't think it occurred to me that, that I don't think I was fully conscious that Lansbury should have been in it until probably grad school. Like, I don't think that I really sort of grasped the full enormity of, of the Mame phenomenon until I was in grad school. I'm ashamed to say. What I think is impressive, um, we often talk when we talk about Murder, She Wrote, about how she was 59 when she started it and what an age to be launching a whole new chapter of your career and trying a, a medium that you've never tried before and then to be successful at it, right? Right. But Lansbury herself loved the fact that she was 40 and starting out on Broadway and that it really, the, when she she talks about it as like sort of a rediscovered youth, you know, that she felt younger than she had in years. Mm-hmm. And it just gave her all this like joie de vivre and vibrancy, you know, to mm-hmm. be dancing and singing and on stage. Right. And I mean, there's a really interesting way of like, I, at least for, for me, of engaging with like Angela as a star. Because, you know, my grandmother actually introduced me to Gaslight. Like, so by that point, I already knew just or Angela as Jessica and as Eglantine from bedknobs and then my grandma's like here i want you to see gaslight which is her first role and i you know it's really there's a a unique experience that you bring to a viewing of a film of a star that you're already familiar with but when they're young yeah which is obviously different than what we normally like we usually live we obviously live life forward <laughs> so like we see mm-hmm. stars grow and develop over time but it's a, it's a we're sort of going backward is is unique and it's sort of it's in the, in the true sense like you just it's something you can't really replicate it's i don't know there's something really fascinating and rich about that there's something really interesting about that like i remember the first time i watched gaslight as an because i was an adult when i first watched it and it was like hey maybe i was a teenager but i was older right and it was like that's the lady for murder she wrote but she's like right? 18 I mean, I remember watching, so this is a, a deep cut. So she's actually in Samson and Delilah, one of my all-time favorite movies, and one of, I think, the best epic movies of the mid-century. She plays Hedy Lamar's sister, Semidar, who's killed by accident during, like, she's the one who marries Samson and is killed by accident and sort of precipitates this huge crisis. But it's just so sometimes weird to see, like, you know, young Angela with, you know, her, her China doll face playing a Philistine princess. Like, it's just, I don't know, it's... It's just weird, but fun, fun at the same time. Because there's something almost, obviously, in a movie like Samson and Delilah, it's kind of campy, but that's part of the joy of it. I think my favorite moments of her classical Hollywood career are the twinned performances in Gaslight and Dorian Gray, um, both like back-to-back and both for which she was nominated for an Oscar. So, I mean, just how remarkable that your mm-hmm. first two roles ever, you're nominated for an Oscar. What a start to a career, right? Um, but I think what I love so much is just how, um, don't laugh, okay, but how overwhelmingly Irish she seems in both of those. Because she was, right, her mom was Irish, and although she grew up in the UK and then moved to the US during World War II, like, don't write in, you guys, but I feel like she looks really Irish. She has Irish eyes and Irish cheeks in a way that really resonates for me because I am also very Irish. Uh, and... There's just something so pleasurable to me about seeing her on screen when she's still a really dewy young person with this beautiful skin and these really plump, beautiful Irish cheeks, because I feel Mm -hmm. like, um, and she talks about this too, like she didn't have the look 
of a 1940s movie star. She looked different than those women. Mm-hmm. And she always would. And she thought that perhaps contributed to why she was never a leading lady. Yep. But for me, it was really exciting because she looked like someone I could be or someone I knew. She looked like my family. And she was on screen. You know, it's funny that you say that because a few weeks ago, um, I was, uh, Bridget, I'm going to refer to a conversation Bridget and I had. I sent her a picture of my great grandmother. This was my grandmother of who I've already spoken, her mother. And I was like, I have this picture of her that I got from my grandmother's belongings. And it's uncanny how much my great grandmother looks like Angela Lansbury. And you pointed out that she has the physiognomy of of the Irish, like with the sort of plumper cheeks, the way the mouth turns in just a certain way. And I was like, you're probably right, because my great grandmother was of Irish extraction, like not directly mm-hmm. from Ireland, but was descended from Irish folk. And it was just like, yeah, I can see that. And like, and so you're right that there is a sense in which Angela Lansbury looks like people that we both know. And I think that helps to explain why we have so much investment in her. So what I also think is interesting about our sort of retrospective discovery of her is um, having grown up with her as this grandmotherly benevolent figure. Then as film scholars, we both started diving deeper into classical Hollywood. We weren't even necessarily trying to discover Angela Lansbury, right? We're just trying to understand the quote unquote film canon. And we come across things like the Manchurian candidate. I, first of all, I love her in that role as Mrs. Eisland. It is positively brilliant but i can remember distinctly seeing like it must have been a biography special or something where they were showcasing her performance in that role and i just i mean i was must have been like i don't know 13 14 at the time and just being so vexed by the idea of angela lansbury of all people playing a villain which i bring this up because that's a common response that people have when a star breaks their cast but at that time you know i mean she doesn't really have as a not a-list star she doesn't really have a type to work against necessarily but it, that's that what I was referring to earlier, that sort of retroactive, you know, star turn. It's, and it, it's again, it's one of those phenomena that is interesting because of the way that we came to her stardom. And so I just wanted to elaborate on that because it's one of my very clear Angela Lansbury memories. It's- Absolutely. It was the first time I had ever seen her be evil. Uh, and was it was also the first time I remember thinking, oh, she's not just playing a role that's kind of like herself. She's an actor. Right. Those were all murder. She wrote was were all choices, and now she's making a different choice, being right. this villainous Mrs. Iceland. But you know, teach that's actually backwards from how people of her age understood her, because of course she played horrible women through her film career from twenty from nineteen forty five to the sixties. Right, she played horrible women, and then she became benevolent when they did murder. She wrote, and they right. would write her letters that said, "I used to hate you, now I love you." I mean, and it's it's really, I mean, if you haven't, we're going to do a special episode, I presume, on the Manchurian Candidate at some point. But I mean, it's if you haven't seen it out there in the audience, like it's a truly chilling performance. It is a masterclass in like tightly coiled, like Mrs. Island as a character is tightly coiled and filled with rage and menace and malice. And it's really a masterclass in acting. Like it's not just the way that Lansbury like moves through space it's the way that she controls her face it's the way that her body moves like it's so a rigid control that is deep that is both you know acting but it's also just so in tune with the character of Mrs. Island, who is someone who is so utterly controlled and controlling. Angela Lansbury described the part as one of the greatest parts written for women uh, and likened it to the equivalent of playing King Lear on stage right which is largely regarded as like one of the 
most prestigious, best, juiciest roles that an actor on stage could ever play. I mean, she gave it she, for her. She felt that it was like kind of the equivalent, right? It's just a fantastic role. And she's, of course, given that beautiful monologue at the end that I can't tell you about because it'll spoil the whole movie. Um, but it really just allows her to shine in all her evil glory. Mm, it's it's truly sublime. It is sublime. And it I is, don't use that term really lightly, is, but yeah. it, it is like it is a one of those performances that almost is an out of body experience to watch. I mean, the movie as a whole is that way, but her performance is what really anchors the whole thing. And I suppose we should do an episode on this where we can dive more deeply into this. But of course, uh, it's widely regarded as one of her best film performances now, um, but it vanished after it was released for various reasons. There's lots of conspiracy theories around that. Um, but after its release, it kind of wasn't seen. It, and, uh, you know, so nobody really talked about it for many, many years. I, I want to just think a little bit about like her post-murder she wrote career. Obviously does a lot of stage work with, you know, sporadic film appearances, you know, because obviously not having much access to theater. I was always rather sad that she didn't end up doing any more murder she wrote stuff. Oh, that's because uh, at the time, Corey Moore, her production company had... Um, and I think we, we should also be clear, Angela Lansbury was not just an actor. I mean, her family started their own production company. She became an, an executive producer for Murder, She Wrote. And she really started shaping her own career and having a hand in um, what projects were picked up for development and which she starred in. So she was a really savvy business person as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Corey Moore had a bunch of deals to do TV movies, and she handpicked books that she wanted them to develop. Um, so she started in stuff that really interested her. I mean, she was in The Shell Seekers. Uh, she did a bunch of Hallmark Hall of Fame movies. She loved working with Hallmark. She felt like they really invested a lot of money in their projects. And so the movies would be really good, which so is not a, usual a, for TV. Right. That's a meeting of your two loves, Angela Lansbury and Hallmark movies. <laughs> um, and she she was happy to like, I mean, she was happy to let go of Jessica only because she'd played her for so long, but she really did love that sort of mystery and intrigue genre and did a bunch of movies um, based on the unexpected Mrs. Polifax novels, um, who is like a grandmotherly figure who gets recruited by the CIA. Right. So same sort of spy sleuth intrigue stuff. Right. I mean, I do remember one of my most prominent memories of Angela post murder she wrote or sort of a little bit of overlap was as Anastasia she plays the voice of Grand Duchess Marie in the Don yes. film so you know even in that role like there's just a richness to her voice like I referred earlier to like the grace and charisma of her sort of, of her, her appearance but her voice is also such a key role for I think why she has such an indelible place in the cultural imaginary is because she just has a wonderful voice like it's not like you know it's so unusual isn't it it? it's like it's rich and deep but it also is very shrill at times and then this bizarre accent that's clearly like the meeting point of her time on the east coast her time on the west coast her time in ireland her time in the uk it's like this very original accent that like nobody else has Mm -hmm. yeah it's and it's i mean talking about voice is always difficult because like voices are just hard to describe accurately there's this, again, something just ephemeral about her that's hard to put our finger on, I suppose. A friend of mine in grad school was dropped a bombshell on me that she was a Republican. Because I don't know if, if you have uncovered this conspiracy theory that Angela Lansbury was a secret Republican that was making the rounds on the internet about a decade ago. Well, what's the evidence in either direction? Well, there was a, a like random IMDb quote, I think, that cropped up 
and then that was the one that was used to sort of bolster the evidence because she said apocryphally that you know Mitt Rom she was a fan of Mitt Romney I think it was at the time you know at the Kennedy Center honors when she was honored in um, the year two thousand. Gordon Davidson, the theater director at the time, said, if Angela ran for president, you wouldn't even have to count the ballots. And I think what makes that quote even better is that she technically would be ineligible to be president, and nobody would care. (laughs) We'd all still vote for her anyway. (laughs) You know, when I heard the news that she passed, like, I was obviously deeply sad for a whole host of reasons, not only because I loved her as an actress, but because of residual grief about my grandmother and all that stuff. But it was also, it struck me, and I said this to my parents at the time, I was like, you know, I hope that if we take nothing else away from this, that to live one's life in such a way that 96 years seems like too little time spent on the earth means that you've done something right with your life. And I, you know, I feel like that that's a testament to Lansbury's sort of like essential goodness that that's how people think about her. Like, you know, taken too soon at 96. Like, I think that's a hell of a legacy, personally. It is a hell of a legacy. And I have to say, as someone who's dug pretty deeply into research about her life and career, um, it's in, it's hard to find people who don't like her. Um, I think, for instance, her Lifetime Achievement Tony Award this year um, was accepted by Len Cariou, who has known her for over 50 years. They've been friends for that long. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that so many people have worked with her and have positive things to say of their encounters with her really speaks to a graciousness that probably helped continue that career long term, um, but also just to her earnestness as a human being. And like I said, I think that that's a good model for all of us to sort of think about as we as we live our lives. Obviously, any retrospective of Angela Lansbury's career in 30 minutes can't be a complete retrospective and doesn't need to be. But I think what we've done is touch upon why she's so important to the world is that each of us has our own stories of how she touched our lives and how we felt a personal connection with her and her work. That is a real testament to, you know, her success as a star is that she established that personal connection with her audiences and fans. And that, to me, is the true mark of a star. I keep picturing Paddington Bear saying, thank you, ma'am, for everything. But it's Angela Lansbury he's having tea with, not the queen. Thank you for everything. Well, I think that's all we have for our special res- retrospective of Angela Lansbury. So for the Cabot Co. Gazette, I'm TJ West. I'm Bridget Keyes. And we'll be back with you soon with our regularly scheduled Cabot Cove analyses. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.